0: The following is a class given by His Holiness Jaya Swami Maharaj on October 31st. 1986 at New Taliban Farm in Carriere, Mississippi, USA. The class begins with a reading from the Srimad Bhagavatam, 7th canto, chapter 9, verse 43. city there's not so many malls in there. like in the center of it they have a big auditorium and there are over a thousand people were there all very high society people were very impressed by the Vedic wedding ceremony they said oh this is very spiritual because we explained at each point what are the different obligations a husband and wife what are the concepts behind it of different things people could appreciate so Within the Vedic culture, there are so many rules and regulations or so many different rituals that are there, whether Garbhudana-samskara or marriage, or uh, well marriage, Garbhudana-samskara, then after three months of pregnancy, four, six, or eight months of pregnancy, birth, all these different things, all meant for purifying the family situation, for raising Krishna-conscious children, when they start gurukul, there's also a ceremony. This actual special ceremony when Lord Chaitanya first is going to start his studies, then the father does the sacrifice, (coughs) prays to Vishnu and personally puts the pen in his hand officially for the first time and helps him write the name of Krishna. Like this, there's a whole ceremony when someone formally starts studying in the Gurukul. There's so many ceremonies which are meant to get the blessing of Krishna on the children and to purify the whole situation. So the people in the West, they're totally uh, amazed by, actually, we use these as various preaching programs, giving the first grades. Or it's, it's very interesting to the people, especially if they're a little pious, to see that how a culture is so filled mm-hmm. with spiritual consciousness. So in contrast, of course, we have a material situation where everyone's making plans to be happy. Everyone's making plans to be happy. What's very interesting was recently in South America, they had a... Uh, things broadcasted in uh, television where they're interviewing different Americans and each were giving their opinion about how the world should be better and this and that, all the big, big plans. Then at the end they ask, are you happy? Not once said yet, don't be abstract, we will be happy in the future. So <clears throat> this is the thing, in this material world, if we're very pragmatic, it's a dukalayam, there's bound to be suffering. The real happiness in the material world doesn't come from sense gratification, because sense gratification produces suffering. So whatever sense gratification we enjoy on the one hand, we are going to suffer some other kind of inconvenience on the other hand. So there's no perfect situation here in the material world. And the best you can do is deciding of balanced sense gratification, but that's not ultimately satisfying, so nobody wants to balance. Unless you have spiritual... Life, unless there's Krishna consciousness, sense gratification itself, whether balanced or whether uh, in excess, it doesn't produce satisfaction. Of course, those in the mode of goodness, the brahmanas, who have a little, uh, very balanced life, they actually become kind of peaceful in a material sense, so they feel self-complacent. Sometimes the people who are leading a little natural life, a little pure life, they feel a little bit of relief from a lot of the excessive sufferings that one gets in the material world by acting excessively, by acting irregularly. But that little bit of peace that they get is, in itself, not, not that's not the ultimate objective either, because that is also not pure happiness, simply it's a reduction of the miseries that people are getting because of previously being too much in the mode of ignorance or passion. What is really needed is a positive spiritual happiness. And that comes from practicing Krishna consciousness. So, Kalata Maharaj, he can see this lack in society. The people are making so many plans, they're going ahead very enthusiastically, but actually that they're foolish because ultimately nothing is going to uh, produce that real happiness that they're looking for. That is produced by being Krishna conscious. Recently, uh, in the October issue of the Omni magazine, they produced a whole series of articles on longevity, how to make the body live longer. And they're spending millions and millions of dollars trying to extend the life, trying to find out which hormones cause the body to age and which lack of hormones will start. So they have worked out that if they just get another 30, 40, 50 million dollars, then they're going to be able to extend possibly maybe the, the body of the life by taking various injections and things by 50%. In other words, if you're 65 years old, you'll look like you're 40. And if you're 100 years old, you look like you're 65 and so on. Of course, eventually you're going to have to die anyway. Of course, then there's a few of the people that they say, well, it doesn't look like we're going to have a breakthrough before I die. So they're investing in the new techniques of freezing the body so that they can have hibernation. So as soon as they figure out what chemicals to push into the body, then they can be rethought out and uh, cured from their p- disease. Like this, So the materialists are making so many plans, spending so much money, trying to figure out how to make the body live a little longer, how to extend the life. But if actually the… but then even there they admitted that like the Spanish people were looking in Florida for the fountain of youth because they had seen different drawings which showed people getting old, like in the Indian Aztecs or whatever showing them getting old and dipping into some kind of water and coming out and being young. So they took it to mean there's a fountain of youth. They're looking everywhere. But now after studying it, some of the other scientists after studying Indian philosophy, they say this simply is symbolic for reincarnation. You get old, you die, you take a new birth, you get a new young body, going in the ocean of birth and death. You dip in and come out again. Simply uh, that at that time, and they also found that the Aztec's language is non-different from the language of Bangalore and South India, the Karnada language. And that they have Vishnu deities and that the king, the queen, the king had tilak, of the Aztec king in Mexico, and the queen had a little dot on her forehead. And like they found so many things now, that they recently found a Vishnu deity in Mexico, And the Mexican government was so embarrassed that their culture is coming from India that they donated the deity to India so they wouldn't have to keep it in their museum and explain (laughs) it. (laughs) And so the Indian ambassador came over or whatever minister and took it back to India. But like this way, people are really avoiding the fact that Indian culture is the original culture of our world, that Indian culture is actually providing us, you should look to our roots, you hear all the roots, 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 look to your roots. go into the jungles and try to find where we came from, but actually the whole civilization is coming from India. The reason I took Tatra Prabhu to the Epcot to show him that, so uh, we get an idea, because we want to make a Chaitanya world in Mayapur. And of course, well, they say, it's really boring, <clears throat> but uh, I was uh, showing him how they keep showing the history of the world, and they show how there were cavemen, and then from cavemen, they came Egypt. And from Egypt came Europe, and from Europe came America. And America is like, the, that's it, you know, that's the top. So, but you know, how they just go from the caveman to Egypt, and they show the, how the Egyptians or the Arabian culture gave the number system to the world, Arabian number system. But in the book which I gave uh, Yogendra Prabhu uh, on uh, Vedic arithmetic and mathematics, it mentions, and I actually asked when I was in the Middle East, that there it mentions that in Arabia, their number system they call the Hindu number system because it was brought from India by pandits to the old sheikhs in the, in, the, in the desert there who were milking their camels and eating the dates and things. It was, uh, and They had some pearls in Arabia in the Persian Gulf, that's why they became a well, trade was between Persia and India. So these pandits came there and taught them the number system. Because before in Europe, in the Roman number system, there was no zero. Zero didn't exist. So it's very hard to make complex mathematical uh, calculations without zero. The zero concept. The Maya bodies love this. The zero concept came from India. of <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> But uh, the idea of zeros and the decimal system, all this is from India. That's why we have lakhs, crores, arabs. Is there all decimal system? So everyone's proud that we are from Arabia or from Egypt, but they, actually, this all like, I, it seems to me almost to be cheating. That somehow they're just purposely avoiding a very obvious fact that India is the origin of the culture of this world. Now, the language etymologists, they always say that this is uh, the Latin Aryan or this is the Slavic Aryan, because they say that language, Sanskrit, is the mother tongue of all the Latin languages and even all the Germanic. So they can't avoid that if the language is coming from the Sanskrit, then why not the culture? Why not look back to this original culture and see what they... Now we've degenerated due to the various uh, passings of time. Actually the people, they feel, oh, this uh, Hare Krishna's or something, so they don't know, that we are their roots. We are their roots. The Indian culture or the Vedic culture is the root. They shouldn't feel alienated. They've been alienated by purposeful uh, fudging of the, uh, of the propaganda that's been presented to them. So that they never think, India is like something, well, yeah, really far out there, something, you know, starving people. They never, they think, that, what is the connection between the West and Egypt? Egypt was simply uh, a transit point of the culture coming from India to Europe. In fact, I don't even know how much relation it has at all, except that Egyptian culture also came from India, because they worshipped Ra, the sun, they worshipped uh, different uh, demigods, which can also be traced back to Indian culture. So, from that point of view, people could learn something by what is the ancient culture. But in any case, Prahlad Maharaj's point is that past, present, and future, there have always been these big plans to enjoy in the material world. But these plans, unfortunately, are failures. They don't work. So why don't we see what will work? And he's present. This is what works if you're Krishna conscious. This works. This is actually what makes people happy because we're a combination of matter and spirit. If we neglect the soul, simply by making material adjustments, no matter how many material adjustments we make, we won't be happy. So we have to take this. Desire or this idea, this hope within us, what is the one obstacle that's keeping us from being fully Krishna conscious is we harbor a hope that maybe somewhere, somehow, some way in this material world we can be happy by sense gratification. And that is the Maya, that is the illusion, that is the enjoying attitude. So then, When we get some opportunity to enjoy, we think, now, this is the way, this is the chance. And then, instead of taking shelter of Krishna, we try to take shelter of sense gratification. We should thoroughly eradicate this last bastion of illusion and just take it completely out of our consciousness that there is any hope, there is any way to achieve real peace or happiness in the material world. Except for Krishna consciousness. It is hopeless. By Krishna's own definition, it is dukkalaya, it is asasvatam. It is a place of suffering, it is temporary. That so I means that no matter how hard you try to get happiness, they are going to be suffering. No matter how hard you try to make a permanent arrangement, it's going to be finished. Whether they extend their life by 20% or 50% or whatever. There's going to be complications anyway. They're going to die sooner or later. So there's no real solution materially. The solution is given by Krishna, given by great souls like Prabhupada, Maharaj. Is living a natural, balanced material life directed towards the aim of satisfying Krishna, towards devotional service. That is the best use of the body. Without the Krishna conscious touch, there's no. There's no real solution. I was once invited to speak by the Ford Institute of Development in uh, Kathmandu, the capital of the only Hindu kingdom in the world, Nepal, on religion and science and uh, development. But this is an unusual topic, but their point that different science, I was the key, keynote speaker, but there are other people who are uh, giving the introductions, and so it was a formal seminar. And uh, at that time, they said that we've been doing a lot of development, we've spent millions of dollars, but we find that in spite of that, the real material development or happiness of the people that, that we wanted hasn't increased. Maybe they had a mud house, some places they have a wood house, or they had a wood house or mud house, they have a brick house. We've been able to do some things like that, but the people are no happier. And sometimes even social problems increase. Instead of, uh, we saw one uh, superficial problem and we have another more real problem about character, morals, social injustice and so on. So somewhere we are failing, somewhere our development work, in spite of so much effort and investment, is not producing that which we want. So what is wrong? Maybe religion has the answers, then I was asked to speak on that. So, even the materialists, the real intelligent intellectual materialists, they also understand that it's not working. Now, in Poland, there's so much socialistic propaganda and everything, being a Warsaw bloc, that now they also have their own punk movement. For the youth, they're fed up, they're tired of it. They don't want to hear anymore about Marxism, Lenin. They're, they don't know, so they think, well, maybe the Western democracy, but in, Western, we also have punks, and they're fried out with the Western way. So, people are getting more and more disgusted, but because when we present, here is the positive alternative. This is the positive alternative. This is not destructive. This is not perversive. This is not, this is very constructive. This is very positive. This is very complete. But because the people are so fixed in their atheism and demonic or materialistic ideas, or because they have a prejudice against anything which is not their culture or something like that. They mean they oh, know this us, the cult, just the Hare Krishna, we don't want to we got our own plan. And they just ignore it. Instead they go ahead making all their plans, which are just gonna create more and more problems. So what happens is it drives the youth to negative aspect, a negative alternative, and they become more and more and more negative and they become punks, or worse, they become terrorists and they become drug addicts and frustrated, and then the society says, what is the solution? What is the solution? We have to have a stronger police force. We have to, but then they say, we have to have heavy police force because 20% of Americans are taking uh, marijuana, so we have to tighten up. The, well, 20% of Americans are taking marijuana. So how much can you tighten up your police force if it's one of every five people is breaking that particular law? So, I, mean, it's, I mean, they make these plans and you read it and you just think, what are these people doing? They're just totally in illusion. And unfortunately, you go to these big people and you try to explain something to them, they're, they're so fixed in their materialistic plans, they're so attached to their little brainstorms, they don't want to hear. So what did Prabhupada say? He said, therefore, we're going to the people door to door, house to house, to convince them of this Krishna conscious movement. This is what Lord Chaitanya ordered, even Nityananda Haridas. Suno Suno Nityananda Suno Haridas Prakash. Listen, Haridas Thakur, listen Nityananda Prabhu. Take my order and go to every house and beg the people. To chant Hare Krishna, Bolo Krishna, Krishna, to worship Krishna, Bolo Krishna Shikha, and to read Krishna's teachings. This was Lord Chaitanya's order to get people to read Krishna's teachings. That's Prabhupada's books, Gita, Bhagavatam, Krishna's books. Bolo Krishna, to chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, 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 Hare Nap, Hare Hare Ram Ram, Hare Hare and Hare Krishna. To worship Krishna in their home. This is our Krishna Perfection in Home Namhat program. But this is a particular order of Lord Chaitanya, specifically to go and meet the people. Especially if we have a democratic country, if the people can eventually be convinced of Krishna consciousness, then they'll elect leaders who are Krishna conscious. If they have leaders who are Krishna conscious, then maybe they'll add a little sense. To all their plans. Right now it's the blind leading the blind. So, Prabhupada wanted that the people should see that Krishna conscious devotees as being so upright, straightforward, honest, that they'll naturally want to hear from them, that when their devotees speak to them, people will be very open and receptive. So, in this regard, of course, we have a long way to go. But Gradually by being open, by being conscientious, by cultivating those people who are favorable and getting people who are in society to cultivate their friends and their known people in this way in a type of chain reaction the preaching can expand. Our Nalhat uh, type of preaching or where we try to get people to chant, but what are they gonna do? If they're sitting in their home, what are they going the point to do is get them to engage in preaching also. Get them I have a disciple who's a quality control in a match factory, Swedish match factory in India. He's in charge of the quality control and he has a personal program that from his salary he gives every month 150 uh, rupees and he buys books and he goes and to each person in the factory he gives them one book and he asks them if they like, they can give a donation. Anyway, it's just a personal gift from him, they like to give his book fund, a little thing, Some they give something, whatever he gets, he again buys more books and gives out to more people. So in this way, he from 150 maybe gets 50% back, comes 225. So he said even the communist union leaders of India, even when they, they saw he was going around, they said, hey, when am I going to get my book? And they got a book also, and uh, everyone has become very favourable. And so now he wants to know what are the next programs he can do, because he's almost covered all the 6,000 employees in his big factory, so over a period of a couple of years. So there's other programs now that he's doing as well, but he's continuing on with the book distribution. So just uh, one uh, fired up folk member, he can also do so much preaching. But we have, it requires, just like we go on Sankirtan, we wonder how to, how to distribute and Krishna inspires with some idea, with some mantras, or some means, or some ways, or some ideas, how to uh, rescue Lakshmi, or how to do Sankirtan. Similarly, in every sphere, like Prabhupada wanted us to establish Varnashram in America, he wanted us to establish in the Western world the Varnashram system, to have Krishna consciousness reach the people, and to organize society in a more God conscious manner. And actually, we see that if you just study. What are the problems of today? Just like, for instance, they're concerned that so many high school teachers are having illicit sex with the high school students. In other words, instead of being a brahmanas and gurukul where they're strict and the teachers are strict and everyone's uh, trained as a brahmana because it's much a Javana culture, so these teachers, to get, give good grades to their students, they're exploiting the students and the parents are concerned what to do. But they're not able to do anything. But well, that's why in the Vedic culture, those who are the teachers are Brahmanas. And Brahmanas are, by definition, those in the mode of goodness who don't engage in illicit sex, gambling, intoxication, or meat eating. They lead a very simple life and a pure life. And they impart their knowledge to others. Well, the Kshatriyas are other people. They're not the teachers in the Gurukul. They're the Kshatriyas of the people that run the government. And they sometimes. Get into a little drinking or a little thing because their politics and that it's very heavy and sometimes they get into a little bit of illicit activity and there's some little scope for kshatriyas because of the nature and the danger and the risks uh, that they take in the physical sense to uh, to perform their duties. So like this, the society is structured in such a way that if there were different laws for different occupations, if there were different, you could see that if varnasam were established. Not in a not in a birth system, but in a system of of a type of social organization with an overall Krishna conscious uh, or God conscious objective. That actually, these various social problems that one or by one are surfacing in the Western world, they could be much easy, more easily controlled. Anyone who has any kind of a uh, person to be certified as a teacher, they would have to go through certain. They have to be a, be trained in that way, not simply. Uh, academically, but morally and character-wise, it have to be certified. And if they don't live up to that standard, they're given certain, what is the reward for that? Well, a brahmana is given certain, uh, if he had one world government, well, a brahmana is given certain facilities. He's able to travel. He doesn't need a visa anywhere he goes, he can, because he's a, he's a person who's given parting knowledge to others. Well, for the other people, like Sudha, for them to travel, there's some restriction. Because they travel, maybe just to cause trouble. So it's all t- I mean, of course, we're talking about 10,000 years from now. Krishna consciousness is still going to be in the world. That after some years, society will may change drastically. It's not something that well seems even possible to happen immediately. But things can happen step by step if we have if we have the vision where we want to take society. No one else has any vision. They don't have any idea where society is going. They're just trying to keep the whole economic thing juggled, balancing. They're just, just somehow not trying to keep the things afloat. As far as figuring out where everything is going, they don't have the slightest idea. It's just going by accident. It's totally out of it. It's not in anyone's control. So if Krishna conscious devotees have an idea, have a concept. And if we keep on preaching that to people, if we become more and more uh, conversant with the Varnashram concept, with the Krishna conscious concept that we can gradually change society by Krishna's mercy. He has that power, without any doubt. We have to ourselves become thoroughly convinced that the goal of life is not sense gratification, the goal of life is Krishna consciousness. Then we can change other people. So long as we are harboring this idea that maybe there's a way that materially we can be happy, then we will not be able to easily convince other people to give up sense gratification. So the... Pure devotion means what? We give up our enjoying attitude. We don't no longer want to enjoy the material world. We want to engage the material energy in the service of Krishna. Ravana wanted the material energy to enjoy it. That is the difference. But Yudhisthira, he was given the material energy to engage in Krishna's service. So there's a difference between the attitude of the devotee and the attitude of the demonian. So within us, of course, we are neither pure demon or pure devotee. We have mixtures of attitudes within us because of association with the material world. But those who are devotees have more divine quality and less demonic. But we have to root out the demonic qualities. Lord Krishna explained in the Bhagavad-gītā, what are the demonic qualities? We have to root those out. We have to take them... We have to purify ourselves from those by practically engaging in Krishna consciousness. And when we see something that's demonic, something that's materialistic, we take it away. Eventually by the mercy of great devotees like Prahlad Maharaj and Srila Prabhupada we can come up to that pure position where actually we're detached from the material desires. Where actually we are just as Prahlad said, I'm happy anywhere I am. Why? Because I'm thinking always about Krishna. This is a perfectional platform to always be thinking about Krishna, serving Krishna, talking about Krishna. The material platform is we never talk about Krishna, we never serve Krishna, we simply want to serve our senses, we want to talk about everything else, we want to do everything else. This is the extremes. So in the devotional life, when we're living in an ashram, we learn to be silent. Now, In India, of course, they have these monabhava, people that don't speak, they just sit there. And people think they're great sadhus, and then they write letters to everyone, you know, it's like... You want to say something, you, write, you speak to them and they answer you and giving you a letter. So Prabhupada say, what is that? They're not speaking, but they're thinking and they're writing. Even for some years, uh, they do this sometimes. They put on a show, they don't speak for a few years. So Prabhupada says, better they don't speak because when they speak, they just speak nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but that is not the real silence. Silence means to only talk about Krishna. Talking about Krishna does doesn't mean that uh, any devotional service we talk about we should talk about what is our devotional service or how to expand devotional service or something like that, a particular time and place. But especially when we're doing deity worship, for instance. We don't talk about how Bill is doing such a nice job repairing the tractor or something. Even though it's devotional service, because we're worshiping the deity, at that time we just chant Hare Krishna, and we just say that, uh, you know, how while we're cooking a nice uh, tomato chutney for the deity, how some uh, little baby's got a boil, and how the mother's got a new technique for squeezing out the pus or something. And this is a, It may be devotional service, or maybe a time and place, but that's not the thing we discuss while we're cooking the tomato chutney for the deity. We think at that time that we're cooking this for the deity, and it's to be offered. So there's a time and place for things. And we should do the thing, be Krishna conscious, and try to refine and control our mind so that we're actually silent. Silent means that we don't talk. But we talk about Krishna Krishnakanda, which is appropriate for that time and place. Just like there may be devotional, so we don't talk about cleaning the bathrooms when we're eating prashanam. It's just not the proper thing to do, although the tendency is always there, but it's not uh, the proper thing. When you're talking to a neophyte person, you don't tell them all about uh, how such and such uh, senior devotee has had some uh, difficulty, because what is it going to help? Some people always have difficulty in the material world. They try to be Krishna, whether junior or senior, sometimes it may happen. But you don't discuss these things with the neophyte devotees because they're just trying to themselves figure out what is Krishna consciousness. If they hear that some senior devotee has difficulty, then it sometimes bewilders them. And if you want to explain part, you got to explain the whole thing. And Then they have to have enough brain to be able to digest it. They have to have enough philosophical basis. So better not to enter into something unless you can completely give a proper explanation. So like this... In silence or in controlling our mind, gradually we also become more and more, uh, conscientious of what things at what time will be pleasing to Krishna. And finally, the culmination of that is explained in the Nectar of Devotion about Rasavas. That even certain just t- topics, for instance, like the mood of Radha and Krishna and the mood of Yasoda and Krishna are different. One is conjugal, one is, uh, Vatsalya. So these don't mix. Conjugal and maternal or paternal love does not mix together. So you can't mix, in other words, the mother is not ever, the pure paternal love is not mixed with any kind of conjugal. It is a different attitude. It's a totally different situation. And if somehow somebody mixes the two. Then it becomes a rasabha. So that is in a very high level of tasting transcendental mellows, which Lord Chaitanya he had uh Sarup Damodar checked all the books and literatures that were written to see if there was no Rasavas. And then of course, you know, that's something which eventually we hope to uh, attain to is be able to understand all these uh different uh subtleties between relationships of Krishna and his devotees. And then but the same thing on a grosser level has its application in our daily activities. What we say what is appropriate at a particular time and circumstance. So the nectar in the Chaitanya Charitamrita says we have to become expert in Vaishnava etiquette. That Vaishnava etiquette is one of the things that a person needs to know before they can get love for Krishna. If we offend the Vaishnavas, someone may be a great manager, but in his management if he offends Vaishnavas, then he may not get love for Krishna. so what is the advantage? So a person has to know how to manage and how to be a Vaishnava, how to serve and how to be a Vaishnava. Right. So we are always trying to refine our understanding of Vaishnava bhabhar how to interrelate with the devotees. This is very important. We may chant our sixteen rounds for all the four principles, but we may not relate with other devotees in a mature way. This is a characteristic of Kaniṣṭhādhikārī. We are trying to become a Madhyamadhakari. Madhyamadhakari means we are friendly with the other Vaishnavas. Kanishadhakari is a little bit proud, a little bit separatist attitude sometimes. More easily they can fall into that. Not necessarily, but generally. That they are proud either of their being very, they're very pure. Sometimes even Prabhupada said that the Pujaris, they used to become a little self-righteous and think that these devotees are coming in from Sankirtan with the dirty clothes and they're not, you know, so together and their vans are messy and this and that. And, you know, we're really together and pure and everything. And they start to, there's a little bit of a a feeling in Prabhupada, so don't look at the Sankirtan devotees with that type of materialistic attitude. He warned, even in some purports it's mentioned, how he warned his pujaris. that don't think it's because you are worshipping the deity and you're very clean and pure in that way, that's your dharma. Those who worship the deities have to be very clean and pure. If they're not, it's an offense. But just the other people, they may not be physically or externally as clean because they're going out in, in the dust and the dirt and they're doing sankirtan on the street, but their service is not less dear to the deity than the pujari. They're giving their energy for spreading the harinam sankirtan. So like this, within this Vaishnava of Devahar, it goes right into very essential... Concepts of pleasing Krishna, and so that one sees beyond the superficial. But sometimes we may get a little proud, or we may think, "Well, I'm chanting. You know, I'm doing my, I'm doing my duty. Why is anybody saying anything to me?" And we develop a little bit of a separatist attitude. The Krishna uh, Kapila Dave explains that whether through anger or ignorance or passion or goodness, we can have a separate attitude, but that is not pure devotion. Pure devotion has got no separatist attitude from Krishna. It's completely juicy, it's completely surrendered to Krishna. So even being a devotee, we have to see that whether within our devotion there's a mixture of passion, ignorance, or goodness. Ignorance means that sometimes in our devotion we get angry. We are ang- not that we may get it- Angry can be dovetailed in devotional service. That's not necessarily my... But we, if our service is out of anger... I'm gonna show them. I'm a better devotee. I don't know. This type of like an anger. It's not rather than I just want to serve Krishna to please Guru and Krishna, I'm gonna show them. I'm you know so then it's like it's 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 devotion. He's doing service, but instead of being to please Krishna and Guru, it's to show them I'm gonna teach them a lot, I'm gonna I'm better than the other, or something like that. I'm gonna get back, I'm gonna but they're taking it out. So it's dovetailed, it's but it's not pure. So therefore, it doesn't completely satisfy. Or someone, they're doing devotional service, but they're always bitter. My authorities, they never give me the break. I will never get this. I mean, always, you know, in some bitter attitude. This is all different aspects of mode of ignorance. Or then someone, they're doing devotional service, but they think, well, i got to work. i need a devotee, but i got to get a good facility. I have to a very comfortable life. I mean, beyond and above the call of duty, their, their primal objective is... Devotional service with comfort, or with or to get heavenly planets, or some mystic power, or some kind of profit motive is there, lava, or to get some kind of respect from others, but maybe not in an angry way, but in a more of a desirous way. This all under the mode of passion. This also is a separate, it's not pure, just to please Guru and Krishna. So naturally, these things are there in our devotion. We can, we can see these different thoughts. Maya tries to introduce and tries to color. First we have devotional sara, pure desire, and then she tries to like mix in a little tint, yellow, red, or blue, and tries to color it. We have to always be washing, washing our laundry, so to speak, washing our consciousness in the pure nectar of Krishna consciousness, of chanting and taking out all the little tints that Maya tries to introduce. Even why we do something is very important, Just no one else can see outside, everyone's doing the same thing. But internally, why we do something, we have to refine that, we have to analyze. When the mind is saying, yes, let us do this, this is the prophet, I'll get out of it. Like, what? No, don't think like that. Think in a krishna conscious way. This is a Māyā way of thinking. And the same activity can be done in pure devotion or can be done in uh, good devotion or passionate devotion or ignorant devotion. These things were explained in the third canto. So, why is Prahlad Maharaj totally satisfied? Because he has got Chibrainabhakti. He is completely in pure devotion. His only desire is to please Guru and Krishna. He has no other desire. And to see other people be happy. So, that's why when we hear about the pastimes of Prahlad, a little bit rubs off. And we should focus. What is the difference? Why is Prahlad so great? because his attitude of devotion is so pure. His only desire is to... Even he's offered all type of opulences, he's offered anything, but he never wavers in his complete conviction that he simply wants to serve the Guru. And he said, I'm not a businessman. When the Sringade offered him, do you want mystic power? Or do you want... Said, I'm not a businessman. I'm not serving you that I want liberation, or I want something. I'm serving you for your satisfaction. I simply want you to be. I want to serve you eternally. Please give me more devotional service. A devotee, a pure devotee doesn't serve with the idea that after I've served this much, then let me stop. I heard that when I was touring in South America, there was one devotee a little bit more to ignorance and uh, had left a movement or left a little bit. So he was trying to tell the uh, newer people, trying to pollute, said, watch out, these gurus, they simply want to give you service. They always want to give you service. And I said, yeah, that, that's our job, is to give service. That's our service, is to give service. Because by serving, that is the nectar. That is how we get purified. Always trying to give service. That is that if everyone is being given service, then those people who are giving service, they're your friends. Whether they're the temple president or your kitchen head cook or whoever, Sankirtan leader, we need service. The service is the only thing that keeps us away from maya. If we're not doing service to Krishna, we're serving maya. So, Pala Maharaj is always serving Krishna, therefore he's always happy. But then he sees that these other people—they're suffering just like Vasudev Datta. He was happy in Krishna consciousness; he was totally in bliss with love of Krishna. But then he saw all the people in the material world—they're working hard trying to gratify their senses, and they're suffering. So he went to Lord Chaitanya and he pleaded to him, "Lord Chaitanya, please somehow by your mercy, I've got this nectar of Krishna consciousness. I'm always feeling Krishna conscious and happy." Why all these people are suffering? Please give all of their karma to me. Let me take on all of their sinful reactions. Let me suffer for them. Let them all go back to Krishna. Let them taste the nectar. Why better? Why if one person can take all the karma? Why shouldn't one take all the karma and let them go? Why should so many suffer? Let me suffer for them. And let them taste it. Because even if I'm suffering materially because I can chant your holy name, I'm going to feel blissful. But they have no hope for being blissful because they don't know about devotional service. So give them devotional service and let me take all the suffering for them. Let me rot in hell and let them go back to Krishna. Of course, Lord Chaitanya, he started crying when he heard this, how compassionate Vasudev Dutta is. He started to embrace Vasudev Dutta. Where in the history of the world is there anyone who has uh, volunteered to take all of the karma of everyone even they're not his followers. I mean, the demons, the, the devotees, the everyone. I mean, there are some great people who even who got sacrificed their life in various ways. And they've said anyone who follows them will be delivered. But those who don't follow, they can rot in hell. They can burn. In, in, in uh, inferno. In, huh? Inferno, yes. As I was say in English. In uh, the infernal... Fire. so there's a contrast that we see here of Vasudeva Datta he was so merciful that when he gave his mercy there was no condition this is the mood of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu that even the most uh, Dimani person even Mitinanda was struck by and "You just because you beat me on the head mean I won't give you pain I won't give you love for Krishna just because you beat me Chant Hare Krishna and this is the mood of Vasudev Datta, Lord Nityananda, the mood of Lord Chaitanya's followers, to give this mercy somehow or other to everyone. Of course, you have so much mercy that Lord Chaitanya has like an ocean of it. And the people, you can hardly give them a drop. It's frustrating sometimes the people, you like to give them so much mercy, but they're, they're so spiritually bankrupt that hardly you can give even a drop to them if you give two drops to overdose. So somehow or another, just by engaging them a little service, letting them hear the holy name, or giving them a little prashadam, they gradually, gradually, they build up. I met a, a person who is a devotee now, and he said, "Yes, he just became a new bhakta or bhakti, I forget." But I remember he said that yes, in nineteen or you know, some like ten years ago, on three occasions, I saw the sankirtan party in New York, in uh, in Los Angeles. And in Miami. Fortunately it wasn't our zone, but he saw the Sankirtan I forget who it was. But he saw the sankirtan in three places, and now the persons come and surrender. So even by seeing the Harinam, that can take its effect after a period of time they get delivered. By getting a book, they read it after years. There was one uh editor of a newspaper in India, he became uh he became a life member because someone, his relatives, had become a life member. He had a book sitting on his bookshelf. He never read them, never. He didn't care about anything about Krishna consciousness. Really, he just was publishing. his… one day the sky blue? Just because every day he looked at the bhāgavatam sitting on his shelf. One day he just picked one out of the shelf and read it. Just opened it up and read it. A few pages. Immediately he was stunned. What is this book? <laughs> and he started reading it, and he read it you know, and then there he started merely reading something like this, uh like, Praad Maharaj just some revolutionary statement that I am not afraid of material existence because uh my concern is for the fools and rascals who are making an elaborate plan. He just opened up and just you know read one of these revolutionary statements that we find in the Bhagavatam throughout it and Immediately, you know, after reading, he just couldn't stop and he kept reading and reading and then he, he looked up the devotees and he, he just started chanting Hare Krishna. And everybody became amazed. Here, this materialistic editor of an uh, industrial magazine, he suddenly has become a fanatical Hare Krishna. You know, he's chanting all the time, he chants 16 rounds and everything and he's a big Brahmin in India, he's from South India. So he says, uh, yes, I know the Purusha Sukta and the sastrana, and they just know like mechanically. But I never had any idea who was the absolute truth. Nobody ever told me. So it was Shiva or Brahma or what But here it is so clear. It's Krishna is the absolute truth. He is the absolute. And so he's going and he's getting all the ministers to come. He's the editor of the newspaper, so all the ministers want him to publish good things about him. So he's very politically uh, influential. And uh, just because that book somehow, somehow got the book on his shelf, he didn't even read it. After years, he said, "I had the books for three years. I never read one. When I read it, it changed my life." Now he's uh, very enthusiastic. So of course, that's—I mean, only in India people buy a whole set of books and don't read it. But uh, (laughs) is that it works in different ways? Krishna consciousness seeds we spread, and when they're going to fructify in this life or the next life, we never can say. But our job is simply to give out this mercy to every person, to every house, as much as we can. And eventually it starts to take its effect. Even that present kind of religious revival in America is definitely due to Śrīla Prabhupāda's uh, preaching. It has changed the whole karma of America, the whole karma of the world. So we have to just become very dedicated instruments in Prabhupada's hand to the disciplic succession, we have to become empowered by Krishna. Each preacher, each Sankirtan devotee, each other devotee, they actually get empowered by Krishna. You know, we always read about how these Maharatis can fight against literally thousands and thousands of people. And it's one of those things like nam you don't want to tell people the gloriously you don't want to tell people the glories of the Maharatis because it seems inconceivable how one person could fight against 10,000 people. It's just something is, all right, <clears throat> next page. But actually, they can do it because they're not having this human power. Of course, you know, this is another, for devotees, we could understand this, But actually, they do various tapasya's. And they get certain type of supernatural powers to be able to fight. They get actual, like, power from, from Krishna, from different demigods and, and so on. They do tremendous tapasyas, these maharatis. There's only, you know, in the whole battle there's a few dozen or so of them, ratis and maharatis and so on. But there are people who have done tremendous austerities and they get, like, blessings from great sages and gurus of that time who were very powerful. Even Arjuna got weapons from Indra and from different uh, people from other planetary systems. So they have these uh, extremely great uh, uh, powers. And of course, so that means they're empowered, but maybe in a material sense they get the power. Where the preachers, we get our power from Krishna. Just like after the end of the Kurukshetra battle, Arjuna was going to get off the chariot and Krishna told, no, don't get off. Why not? Wait. Oh no, actually, uh, Arjuna was saying you know, to Krishna, You go off first. And Krishna said, No, no. you go off. Then Arjuna gets off, walks away. What's going on, you know? And then Krishna, he gets off the chariot. As soon as Krishna steps off the chariot, it's like a nuclear explosion. The whole thing just disintegrates sparks and flames, and smoke. Just suddenly, this huge, beautiful chariot, which was given by, it was a Indra or Sangra? Someone gave him his... Varuna? Agni gave it, Agni gave it. Yes, it's given by Agni. It's just completely ashes, nothing left of it. And you know, Arjuna was told, what, what happened? And he said that so many people were throwing curses, so secret weapons and all kinds of things on me that this this chariot, if I wasn't standing at it, it would have been disintegrated to ashes long time ago. But because I was present, I was holding it up. You had to leave. As soon as I left the chariot, it was finished. So it's like that. The devotee, sometimes people, they they throw their their different uh, malefic you know, desires against, but if a person just remains, like Prahlad was always a simple, surrendered devotee, no matter how much his father tried to destroy him, he couldn't be destroyed. Prahlad was never envious against his father, but Anti-cult people think we're anti-fathers. No, the, Prahlad was never envious against his father. This is his father, happened to be a demon, was envious against his son. Actually, Prahlad was always the well-wisher of his father. The devotee loved his parents. It's a natural thing. And the parents, normally, the devotee parents, they love their children. But that's a natural thing. It just Hiranyakashipu happened to be uh, you know, a demon. So in spite of his son loving him, and he, he hated his son because his son was a devotee. Not a demon like him. So, if we remain simple devotees, if we learn this, uh, this, uh, if somehow we get the blessing of prabhupada and pralaya, we can pray for that. That we can just always be fixed in devotion. We get empowered. We can preach. And even though there may be so many obstacles, somehow krishna protects the devotee. Even though we're putting different difficulties, somehow. And when you're preaching in the West, there's always some difficulty come. I was personally thrown in jail when I was preaching in Montreal, but somehow the chief of police was my friend because I somehow had good relations with him, so then when he found I was in there, he got me taken out. But uh, when you're preaching, there's always a certain risk that one takes. But wherever we are, whether we're in jail or whether we're outside or whatever, we shouldn't be puffed up and think, I'm a devotee, therefore, but we should try... Rather to please Krishna, try to avoid, of course, offending people, but try to please Krishna. And by Krishna's own mercy, not that out of pride we, we should uh, you know, do things which are rash, thinking that Krishna will protect us. That's another perversion. But rather, just by being surrendered to Krishna and trying, one can experience how Krishna does help the devotee. That, cam- that comes causelessly, causeless mercy, confirmed by his sneeze. So, in this way, instead of being absorbed in other things, the preachers should be absorbed like Prahlad. That if I can engage these people in service, I'm helping them, even though superficially they're demons. And of course, Rani Kachipu was a demon, he was killed by or delivered by, uh, by uh, Dev. But Lord Chaitanya, his mood is even these demons, if we engage them in service, then eventually their demoniac aspect is killed, but their What's left is their devotional aspect, so they become devotees. So our mood is that we try to engage the people in service, and, we, and by this they'll benefit. We are doing them a service, but in reciprocation we like to give something as far as possible back. We like to give them as much spiritual knowledge as they could accept, directly or indirectly we try to engage, but knowingly or unknowingly they benefit. This is our objective is we try to benefit the whole society. We're here not simply for ourselves, but we're here for helping the entire society to become Krishna conscious. This is our ultimate objective. But it's a voluntary option. We simply provide and we want to improve the facilities so we can provide a more attractive option for them. So it's more attract, more hard for them to refuse but our objective is eventually to give everyone this positive alternative of Krishna consciousness so that they can become Krishna conscious and they can become freed from the suffering of the material world, that they can also experience the same bliss of Krishna consciousness that Pallad Mahārāj has handed down to us through Śrīla Prabhupāda and Lord Caitanya Mahaprabhu. Any questions? Pablo? I wonder what is more important for the uh, Vaishnava to remain in Brahmacharya or to be a child? What's oh, more important It's an individual situation, individual, individual. That Prabhupada explains in the Eighth Canto of Bhagavatam that we have to work from whatever our position of strength is. The example was that the elephant was fighting against the crocodile. But the crocodile and elephant were in the water, so the elephant was becoming weaker and the crocodile was becoming stronger, so the elephant was actually not able to fight. So he started to pray for Krishna to help. So in this verse, Prabhupāda explains that the devotees should be physically, mentally, and spiritually strong. Essentially they... and it uh, tends to be a little bit of an energy drain. In other words, th- for them, the mind is... Uh, being distracted uh, a lot by different thoughts like that. So it's a constant thing that a person has to work at. Of course, everyone can do it, but it just seems to be like an energy drain or possibly one would be more peaceful and uh, productive in a family situation. So basically it depends upon a uh, each individual. Generally our program is that people should, first of all, practice a brahmaswari life as far as possible and become strong, and then after some uh, time, then the spiritual master and senior Vaishnavas, they can help to advise one whether they should uh, enter into the Grihastha ashram, or whether they should try to remain uh, in the Brahmacharya ashram for some more time, or in some cases, rarely, someone should take sannyas. It depends on one individual situation. Sometimes there people may already, for certain services or certain environments, that may, at a particular time, have been more suitable to be married, so they're married. And then after that they just remain responsibly as bihasas, even though they're very detached. Are you asking from a subjective position, like if somebody's saying something to you, or just when you're observing it happening to third parties? Words, whether it's productive to try to understand whether it's an offense or not to begin with. And some things are obviously offensive and some things are, for instance, uh, because it's an individual, for instance, where another person may be very kind of sensitive, and so when they see that uh, someone is being talked to very harshly, although that person, for him, it, he may actually, him or or whoever, they may actually take it very well in stride. But the other person may be a little more kind of sentimental, a little more just a different nature. They don't need to be talked too harshly, just if they're mentioned to, that, well, why don't you do this, they'll do it. And someone else, they're kind of just keep doing the same thing and making the same mistake, and unless they get really called, to, you know, and dealt with a bit sternly, they, just, it doesn't, they don't wake out of their illusion. Sometimes when we're looking at something from the side, you get a different, uh, it's it's, it's actually hard to say. We may even come to a wrong conclusion because it's very subjective. The ultimate uh, test would be whether a person is uh, encouraged somehow to improve in their devotional service. In this regard, the end justifies the means in many cases that if a person is saved from maya, Whatever is going to save a person from Maya is good. If it drives a person further into Maya, then it's not the it Then it wasn't very productive. As far as an authority instructing someone, it's generally not an offense unless they somehow uh, criticize a person in a in a kind of a. Uh, uh, in a way which is uh, which is offensive. In other words, you can criticize the person's service, but sometimes if you criticize their their physical feature or just some other kind of thing, which is nothing, which is kind of just takes them down materially or attacks another aspect of false ego, which is is not Krishna conscious. So that that might become offensive. You know, criticizing someone ethnic. I mean, sometimes you may have an intimate relation with someone. And you may say something sarcastically, which, because there's a friendship or a love established, the person takes it in a friendly way, that's not, it's not offensive. Another way, it may bring a person down to his body consciousness, and because by bringing him down to his body consciousness is actually uh, somewhat offensive or detrimental for their Krishna consciousness. In good meaning, a person may tell a person, you didn't do your service properly, why don't you do your service, why haven't you done? Uh, they may be even very strong. But the person may, may have a false ego and just not want to surrender to so that. Uh, instead, their false ego flares up and they take it otherwise. So technically, I can't find any reason why that would be an offense. But uh, the Vedas say that for a guru, if he... Drives the disciple out. What does he gain? That say uh, someone's fallen and they're not able to come up to the mark. But so then you just say, all right, you know, you just fry them to the crisp, so to speak. You just like blast them until there's nothing left, and they kind of just disintegrate and bloop or something. What does he gain? You don't gain anything because he's going back in the material world, or she's going back in the material world, or just going in back in the Maya. So the Vedas tell the Guru or anyone who's acting as the representative of the guru or in a, that type of a instructing, correcting app, that uh, the ultimate objective is not to kill the patient, but to cure the patient. So if one cure doesn't work, you may have to try another. If heavy chastisement cures the person, it works, it's good. And Prabhupada sometimes was very heavy, but that was very rare. But sometimes he was very heavy. And some most of the time, what most devotees saw was he was very mellow. But sometimes he was also very heavy. But that was very... That was, you know, selected persons. He used all various techniques. The real thing is, what pulls a person out of maya? They have to see the end result. And that's what the preachers have to also see. If they try one technique, and instead of the person improving, if they go deeper in the modes, then it meant that their technique didn't work. We shouldn't be uh, attached to our techniques, we should be attached to helping the people. You know? But from the side, it's very easy to fall into a kind of thing, well, look at that person is real heavy, or he's real this or that, or you know, getting into kind of judgments, and that might be offensive sometimes, if it's, if it's not very constructive, it's, if it's not really our service. You know, if we see over a period of time that a number of people are are not being influenced by a particular person's methods, and we think that maybe the person doesn't realize that, you know, there might be a better way of doing it. Well, if the person's a peer, then maybe they can talk to that person and give some suggestions, something like that. But probably more dangerous for, depending on you know, if you're a neophyte person, to start judging other people's techniques of management or correcting. Unless it's very obviously frying out a lot of people, then I think everyone will start getting concerned that uh, it's having a reverse effect. Now these are all when you're getting into a very relative aspect of devotional service, because the absolute aspect is ultimately whether the person becomes Krishna conscious. Lord uh, Rupa Goswami said, "Yena tena Krishna mananivasa." you can use any, practically any means at your disposal if you get a person to be Krishna conscious. I mean, uh, to deliver. Yeah, I mean, this is not recommended, and uh, it's a very unusual example, but I mean, to deliver a Villa Thakur, his guru took reincarnation as a prostitute to deliver it. So, I mean, that's a, that's another method of delivering fallen disciples. You know, take birth as a beautiful woman or something, and then they are, then when they're very attached to you, you, preach to them. But, you know, that's not the normal... Like Prabhupada said, don't make your guru do that. <laughs> it's not... Uh, but practically, to make someone Krishna conscious, there's not any, there's not any limit. But the ultimate thing is that, uh, of course, the Guru has got a little more scope because he's ultimately responsible. If someone else is representing the Guru and he fries someone out and they bloop, that person may also have to take reaction. But then ultimately, the Guru is the one that, that has to take the lion's share of the headache as well. So the ultimate issue is to see whether it worked, whether the people. Respond whether they're Krishna conscious. Sometimes some people, sometimes they balance out. You find sometimes in a particular administration, one person is a little stronger, another person is a little mellower. And somehow, if, if one person's technique cries a person out, and the other, sometimes they have another person that they can go to and they can get re rejuvenated. Like in Mayapur, Bhavananda Maharaj, and myself, we have different techniques. I mean, people. Probably picked up, I have a particular way of dealing with people. Bhavananda is sometimes very heavy. And so sometimes when he sees that his heaviness, instead of enthusing someone, like driving him out or something, before they get out the door, he sends them over to me and then I talk to him. But uh, vice versa, sometimes my technique doesn't work and I can't get heavy enough or something, I send them to him. Usually the threat of that is enough to get him to. Uh, the line. That's just how it be when we are co-presidents. We're not that always there together, now. It becomes offensive when we actually don't desire the welfare of the person and we get out of control and we actually start to dislike the person rather than the disease. As long as we love the person, hate the disease, it's very hard to be offensive, even though we may be heavy. Some parents are very strict, but we see that when parents sometimes they're very not very strict, sometimes the, ch- the children spare their rod and spoil the child. That uh, it's a balance it has to be. But the, the essential thing is that the person should actually be having the spiritual welfare in mind, and not just uh, get envious of that person, but become envious, rather become angry with the disease and want to help the person that we find ourselves actually getting uh, angry at the person rather than the disease, then that's, that could be dangerous, could inspire us to, to do something which would be spiritually detrimental to the person rather than helpful. Any other question? Any other, Before we get seconds, any other first? Last question. When I want to fix my mind in the lotus feet of Krishna, shall I think of the actual... Feet, to the the uh, deity, or what's the <coughs> other You can. Mm-hmm. If I can. You can. Why then? Yeah, but uh, the actual deity. That's also in the Krishna's lotus feet. The idea is that uh, why we meditate on the lotus feet is because we approach the Lord out of humility. Of first we may make, we look at the lotus feet. When we met him, the Lord, we look at his lotus feet, his knees, his waist, his chest, his neck, his smiling smile, his eyes, back to the lotus feet. By being humble, looking first at the lotus feet of the Lord, this is a way of avoiding offenses. Of Not that immediately we think we're equal with the, the Lord, but we approaching in a humble, subordinate, surrendered attitude. Because any part of Krishna is absolute. Whether it's, he, with his feet he can eat, with his hand he can see, it's uh, sakalindriya, vittimanti. All of his senses have got the power of all the others. It's not, uh, his body is not a machine like our body. His body is a fully cognizant uh, spirit. But, then, uh, so, but the lotus feet are especially empowered for approaching in a humble way. In other words, if we approach the Lord in a submissive, humble way, this attracts His mercy, it helps us to advance. So, whether you want to call it symbolic or whether it's just a method, we look to the lotus feet first as a sign of humility. Although all the parts are equal, but we look to the lotus feet first just as an as a indication or as an expression that uh, we are approaching in a humble way. Because the lotus feet also give a shelter for the devotees. When one is a very advanced, liberated associate, of course, then they directly look at the face of the Lord and they're talking face to face. But because we're going in a very fallen condition within the material world, we've come after a long time of separation from Krishna. we we're now approaching. So rather than look first directly at the face, we look at the, we keep saying, we take shelter of the lotus feet. Also, when we say lotus feet, this also means that the pure devotees of the Lord are considered to be the representatives of the Lord's lotus feet. It's like the word Prabhupada. Prabhupada has various meanings. One of the meanings is that the Prabhupada or Vishnupada is that it's representing the lotus feet of Prabhu, of the Lord. Prabhupada means a personified lotus feet of Krishna. We take shelter of the lotus feet of Krishna, that also means we take shelter of the devotees of Krishna who are personifications of Lord Krishna's lotus feet. They represent the feet being the shelter of the devotees. But when we to take shelter of the lotus feet, that means that we take shelter of Krishna through devotional service, through chanting, through serving His devotees, through serving. But in our actual, if we meditate on the form of the Lord, we look first at the lotus feet. That's the system. And we go in a circular way, back again to the lotus feet. But in a broader sense, it just means that we, we serve the servant of the servant of the Lord are okay Hare krishna <laughs>